The Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel and one of the riches. It is not a synoptic Gospel because it is so unique from the other three. It's such a great book from which to preach. And I want to do that today. From the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 20 through 26. John chapter 17, verses 20 and following. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, you recognize this as a prayer of Jesus, as he is about to depart his life on earth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as Thou, Father, art in me, and I in Thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that Thou didst send me. And the glory which Thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, them and Thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that Thou didst send me and didst love them even as Thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me, for Thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known Thee, yet I have known Thee, and these have known that Thou didst send me, and I have made Thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith Thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. There is a story about a Spartan king who was boasting to a visiting monarch about the great walls of Sparta, and there were none. Well, where are these walls of Sparta that you keep boasting about? The visiting monarch wanted to know. And the king gestured toward his magnificent troops and said, These are the walls of Sparta, and every man of them is a brick. You and I are the church of Jesus Christ. It is so deceptive to speak of the church, the building as the church. For we could meet out on the parking lot or in a cave and we'd still be the church of Jesus Christ. There is some danger in building our, the walls of a building and we must not be captive to it. For whether it is because of economic status or family background or color of skin, there are some people who feel uncomfortable when they come through the doors of our building behind these walls and they feel unwanted perhaps. And when a person feels uncomfortable and left out, shut out, he, he begins to be suspicious 
And when he gets suspicious, he begins to say, I don't know whether I can trust the people who meet behind those walls or not. Maxwell Anderson has written a play entitled The Wingless Victory. It's a story of a man named Nathaniel who after having been gone for many years returned to his home in Salem, Massachusetts with his new bride, a Malay princess. And this woman had become interested in the Christian religion of Christ and his teachings and his way of life. But the people in Salem were bigoted and narrow and mean and they shut her out and would not accept her because of their prejudice. And the, pre and the pressure got so difficult that Nathaniel weakened and he sent his wife away with the children. And so she boarded a ship determined and vowing that she would die. And in her dark hour she turned again to the gods she had known from her childhood. And in a poignant part of that play she's in conversation with them. And she's telling them that she talks to them about this Christ that she's been drawn unto and that her husband's friends profess to follow. And she tells the gods, these earless gods, her belief that Jesus came too soon, that in a hundred thousand years we might accept him, she said, but not now. And what Maxwell Anderson was driving home in the play is this, that sometimes the people can trust Christ and the God He came to reveal, but they can't trust His followers. And Jesus is getting ready to leave this life, depart it, and He's ready now preparing to entrust this magnificent ministry He came to establish into the care of these disciples and those who would follow them. And He wants to make sure that the world can trust them. And he understands that people are hard to get along with. He'd even encountered that among his own disciples and brought him so much disappointment and so much pain. And yet he knew that the world was at stake and he was depending on this little band that he'd called out, this little church, if you please, to be the instruments of God's redemption. And so he prays that they might be one. Could it be possible that the world will never trust a church where there is not oneness? Could it be possible that the world knows that it can never get along with people, a group of people who cannot get along with themselves? And so he prays for unity. He prays for oneness. Could it be that that's the reason he prayed? Well, to be sure, Jesus knew that there would be divisions in the world and in the church. He was no Pollyanna with his head in the sand. He was no real idealist with his head in the clouds. He was a realist who understood the divisions of men. He had encountered it in a hostile world, a divided world. The Jews divided against the Gentiles and hated them. And the Pharisees hated the Sadducees and the slave hated the, the, the slave master. He, he had encountered this divided world with all of its hostility and its suspicion and its animosity. And he'd even bumped up against divisions among his own disciples 
as these men maneuvered for position and place, and as they bantered for a place in the kingdom and argued with one another about who would be first and who would be second, Jesus knew that there would be division. Uh, Pete Gilchrist has written a book entitled, Let's Stop Fighting About the Holy Spirit. And in this book he has a, he has a fascinating fantasy conversation between two men who had been healed of blindness, who had lived in Jesus' day and had been healed of blindness. And they got together one day and they started comparing notes and to their amazement they found that both of them had been healed by the same man. His name was Jesus. And so they started comparing notes about the technique and the method he used. And they found to their chagrin, their dismay, that Jesus had used two totally different techniques in healing. One he healed instantly with just his word. The other he used a different approach. He put mud on his eyes and healed him. And they were confused by that. But one thing they were positive about, they both believed that Jesus could not have healed the other with the other method. And finally, one of them said in total disbelief, hey, it could never have happened like that. And Pete Gilchrist drives home his punchline when he says, and there you have it, my friends, the beginning of the world's first two denominations, the Muddites and the anti-Muddites. <laughs> there will always be division. And there will be division in the church. In fact, the church is made up of people, and people have different ideas. That's why they are Republicans and Democrats. That's why they are liberals and conservatives. That's why they are mechanics and merchants. And God made us that way. And He created us all differently so that we all have different values and, and, and tastes and lifestyles. And the person who knew the most about the church was the Apostle Paul, and he talks about this diversity that's even necessary within the framework of the church. And he insists that that diversity must be there, a diversity of personality and opinions and gifts. And he even leaves latitude for disagreement, even in the church, but he makes it plain that those disagreements must be in the Spirit of Christ or the world will never trust us. He knew there were divisions and would be. But he also knew, and that's why he prayed, he also knew that the world desperately needed fellowship, wanted it. Now, 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 now this has to be true. The world is, is going to be attracted, is is looking for that place where they feel some warmth and affection and love and acceptance, where they feel that they can be real, they can be themselves without being rejected, where they can just tell what's on the inside of themselves without being shot down. I tell you, the world is looking for a place where they are loved and accepted. A lady came into my office several months ago. She, she grew up here in Durant. Her mother runs one of these saloons out south on South 9th out here. She grew up in that bar, that, that uh, uh, dive, for a better, one of a better term. And she went out to, to, to Nevada, and there in a small group Bible study, she found the Lord. 
And she came back to Durant to tell her family and her friends about Christ. She came in to talk to me about it. She absolutely knew nothing about the Bible at all and knew nothing about the church structure as we know it. And so I asked her, I said, what about these people that, that go to the, you know, the saloons, etc., and live there, just stay there day and night? What about these people? How do you reach them? She said, let me tell you why they go there. They're looking for a place where, they're, where they belong. She said, drinking is secondary. They go there because they want somebody to touch their life, so to speak. They want somebody who will accept them and relate to them and said, we just go there and we just sit and talk because we need... And she used that word, fellowship. And so Jesus understood that and that early church understood it and so they laughed together and they sang together and they prayed together and they wept together. And Jesus prayed that they might be one because he knew that that's the key. They needed fellowship. Elizabeth O'Connor tells about Garden and Mary Crosby. Garden is the pastor of the great church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. It's a vital and dynamic, warm, exciting fellowship. But one night he had to travel a great distance to preach at another place and and it wasn't a vital church. It was dead out. I mean, it was dead. <laughs> it was cold. You could skate in it. And, and Garden Crosby said, li listen to what he said. He said, as I looked out over those granite figures, graphic term, he said, as I looked out over those granite figures, I had to repress the urge to take off my robe and walk out into the night where the air was clean and I could feel clean. For these people had supposedly come together to celebrate a high point in the church year and the only signs of life were a few tinkling sounds of coins in the collection plate. And as they left that night, they traveled a little distance and they stopped to spend the night in this little hotel and the only vacant room left was up over a tavern. And he said loud laughter and singing and talking and loud music from the jukebox wafted up into our room and we couldn't sleep. And he says, I was lying there in the bed that night. I was thinking there's more fellowship and warmth in this tavern down here than in the church I just left. And he said, I just knew that if Jesus came back, he'd go to the tavern, you know, instead of the church. Now, don't jump on me. I'm, I'm just quoting Garden Crosby. No, no, no particular reference. And he said, the next morning, as they started to leave, they went across the street to a little coffee shop, shop to get some breakfast. And he said, everybody was coming in, and they were cheering, welcoming each other, and talking about the day's activity and reading the paper to each other. And he said, I sat there and, and almost choked on my scrambled eggs and thought, Jesus would be more at home in the coffee shop than in the church. Dr. O'Reilly gave me a book last week that I'm starting to read by Kushner, the great rabbi. It's a bestseller, Time Magazine says, entitled, What Happens When Bad Things Happen to Good People? And in this book is the account of a man named Emil Durkin. He was the grandson of a Jewish rabbi who became interested in, what, in the impact that, that society has upon one's religious and, and, and ethical uh, uh, outlook. And so he went out to this little uh, South Sea Island, Emil Durkin did, and spent his life 
just, just studying primitive religion of these primitive people. He wanted to know what religion was really like before we gave it a prayer book and a clerical collar. And he reported his findings in 1912 in, in, a, in a paper entitled the, the Early Forms of Religious Life. It's interesting to read it. This is what it said. It said that in the very earliest forms of religion, at least on this little island among these primitive people, religious life was designed to put people in touch with each other. And they had these religious rituals they went through in order to teach people how to share with their neighbors the deep experiences of birth and bereavement, of the marrying of children and the, and the burying of family. And they had these rituals of the planting of the seeds and the harvest in the wintertime. And said, Durkin, listen to this, at least on these primitive islands, they had religion in order that they might share as a whole community in the most frightening moments of life and in the most joyful moments of life. For he said, hear this, they didn't want somebody to have to endure them alone. Now I'm here to tell you, I believe that that is right at the heart of why Jesus established the church. I believe he established the church in order that we might get in touch with one another, that we might touch one another, in order that people might never have to experience the experiences of life alone. And if you turn sometime to that first Corinthian letter in chapter 12, he just goes through this long list of how the church functions and how the body fits together, how it joins together, and the eye and the ear and the foot and all of the, all of the parts of the body having an integral part in its function in order for the church to be the body. And then he just interrupts that discussion and he begins to speak eloquently about love. I mean, he goes into that love chapter. And then he finishes the love chapter and he comes right back to talk about the church again and its diversity and its function together as people are brought together and, and needing one another. He says, I can't say I don't need you. I do need you. Now, I've wondered a lot of times why the love chapter happened to be in that particular place in the context. I know why now. Because that kind of a relationship and unity and fellowship and, and function of the church will never happen unless we increase our capacity to love. It'll never happen. Someone said, love is making your problems my problems for as long as I live. And Pierre de Chardin, the great French existentialist, said it like this, one day when men have mastered the winds and the waves and the tides and gravity, we're going to harness for God the energies of love and then for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Of course Jesus knew there would be division in the church and in the world, but he also knew that there was a hunger for fellowship, a, a need to belong, a need to be touched, a need to be accepted. And so he prayed for oneness. And finally, he prayed for oneness because he was going to send them out on a great mission. And the best way to do the mission was together. 
I mean, if you reduced life down, relationships down, to its barest essential, to its barest form, that is, husband and wife relationship or the home, the, the Bible says a house divided against itself cannot stand. He's talking about the relationship of the kingdom, perhaps, but reduce that down to the home and understand that everybody has to be together in that home working together or it'll fall. And the author of the book of Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. I mean, he reduces it down to husband and wife. They're better than one because of support. When one falls, the other lifts them up. That's the way it happens in our marriage a lot. I get down and my wife picks me up. She gets down and I pick her up. I mean, not literally. She couldn't pick me up. But spiritually and emotionally, two are better than one because of sharing. He said... How are you going to keep warm if there's not somebody to snuggle up to? Two are better than one because you get strength for their strength in numbers. It's the best way to do it. Now, you and I have been given a mission, and the best way to do that mission is together. Together. And that's the, that's the greatest motivation to do it anyway. You see? If I feel I'm unfulfilled, if I feel that I have something lacking then I'm going out and I'm going to get that, whatever it is. For example, I passed by a store window one day, didn't have a, didn't have a whole lot of money in the bank, didn't have any in my pocket. I saw this suit in, that, in the window of that department store. Uh, man, I wanted that suit. My wardrobe was incomplete without that suit, I rationalized. So I went and got it. Um, you know that guy that lives on the corner of your street? We need him. Now, I'm through talking about how much he needs you. I want to talk to you about how much we need him. This church is not complete without him. And I think that's at the heart of evangelism. For in, in 1 Peter, God said through that great apostle that when you finally win the last one that I have his name written here, then I'll come again so that every time you go out and you win somebody to Christ, you can say, Lord, is this the one? Is this the one? Are you coming now? But he's not going to come until his church is complete. And that man who lives down the street from you, that person who lives across the street, that man who doesn't like you, we're incomplete without him. Let's go after him. What would happen if we became obsessed with that? The people who drop by the wayside, whose memberships are on our, whose names are on our membership rolls. What if we just were convinced that we were incomplete without them? We wouldn't let them go to sleep tonight until we were urging them to come back. Come back. We need you. We're not the same without you. Now somewhere for this body of Christ, there's an eye, there's an ear, there's a, there's a hand, there's a foot. We're incomplete without those people. That's our mission. I tell you, our purpose is not to debate in committee meetings about how this should be done and that should be done. Our mission is to fill the church and fulfill the body. The newspaper account has the account of a, of a family that pulled up in a, in, a, in, a, in a national campsite and began to prepare to set up camp. They had children. And they left the children, the older children, in charge of the younger children and started unpacking the car. 
and it was time then to eat their sandwiches. It was about lunchtime, and they called the children. Everybody came but Kathy. Kathy was a little blonde-headed, blue-eyed three-year-old, and they were frantic. The father plunged into the mountain stream, feeling along the bottom, afraid he would find her. The whole campsite was alerted, and everybody began to search for Kathy. Well, the long and short of it is they found her in the bottom of a ravine, scratched and bruised, but all right. And the newspaper account says that when the father tucked her in bed that night in her sleeping bag, she looked at her father and said, Aren't you glad you found me? And in a naive way that expresses the hope of everybody in this world, the hope of everybody in this world is this. Somebody wants me. Somebody needs me. Somebody cares if I'm not there. That's the hope of this world. Somebody is not the same without me. And I suspect, don't you bet, that there's some wondering why we're not looking for them. That's our mission. And Jesus said, I want you to be like me, and I'm like fa the Father. This is the way God is. If one sheep is lost, one they search for it until he finds it. And he comes bounding over the hill, and the whole city begins to rejoice. The whole community rejoices. He found the sheep. I want you to be like that, he said. And this is the way I am, he said. One woman lost a coin and she swept and swept until she put her hands on it and she called her neighbors and they rejoiced because her loss was their loss. That's the way I want you to be, he said. And then he told about a son who went away into the far country and the father was standing on the way day after day looking for him. My son, my son, come home, he thought. And when he started home, the father ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and brought robe for his back and rings for his finger and shoes for his feet and had a banquet because his sorrow was their sorrow and his joy was their sorrow. That's the way I want you to be, he said. That's the way I want you to be. I can't get over that church out in California. I just can't get over it. The man left the church and quit, went off into immorality, and just disgraced the kingdom. And they went out and got him. I mean, they went out and loved him back. And when he came back, they had a banquet. And they went down to E&M cleaners, clothiers, are pennies, and they got, a, they got a sport coat. And they went to Zales, and they got a ring. And they went down to, to the department store, and they got shoes. And they set him at the head table at the banquet, and they got him up, and they put the sport coat on him, and they slipped the ring on his finger, and they put shoes on his feet, and they embraced him. And I tell you, that's what we're about. We're about putting robes on people's backs and rings on their fingers and shoes on their shoeless feet. That's our mission. And one man cannot do it alone, nor two or three. We've got to do it together. 
that's why he prayed for oneness and unity because it's a mission that's insurmountable for one. And I thought as I was getting ready this morning about this sermon, I've wrestled with this sermon for months. I thought about those little children sitting there and they're going to all go off to their seats and I'm going to say to them as they leave, hey, you're supposed to win the world for Christ. And, I'm look, and they're going to look back and say, me? <laughs> and, and, and it would be absolutely ludicrous to say to a nine-year-old child or a ten-year-old child, hey, you've got the responsibility of winning the world. But let me tell you something, that ten-year-old child with everybody else can win this world. Do you believe that? Only with everybody else. And that's the mission. Would you bow your heads? Our invitation this morning will be this. I'm going to ask you two questions for use for the searching of your heart. Are you doing what you are to do in the body? I don't want to, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody. I have enough problem with that myself. But I'm asking, I want to ask you in the Spirit of God, are you doing, are you being, are you the, whoever that is, that God meant you to be when you placed you in the body? Secondly, is there anything you can do today? Is there anything you can begin to do today? that will create in a positive way reconciliation and oneness where there has been broken relationships in your life. Heavenly Father, I pray for this moment of invitation. I pray that the Spirit of God now will take, will move in, will bind Satan from our heart and life and our decision. And I pray that everything that you want done now will be done. We've been faithful to sing. We've been faithful to preach. We know that you're faithful, never changing. I pray that you'll have freedom, liberty, to do what you want to do in our midst. And that there might be a definite, positive response from every heart, from every life that you have touched today. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now I have three invitations. Look here just a minute. The first invitation is for you to come and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't have to live your life alone. You don't have to, you don't have to encounter these problems alone. You don't have to answer those questions alone. Jesus came to be with you and in you. And He created a church that will catch you up and include you. Your first step this morning is to come in humble repentance of sin, trusting Jesus and Jesus only for salvation. Second invitation is for Christian people who have been touched by the, the Word of God concerning your own needs and your own life or to join our church as God leads you to be a part of a fellowship. He never meant for you to live your Christian life in isolation. He never meant for that to happen. And if you can say, well, I don't believe I would, be, uh, I, I would be nurtured or cared for down there, then you come and join us because you're the person we need to teach us how and to show us how and to help us nurture others. Is God leading you to make a decision this morning publicly?
I hope that God will give you the courage to do it while we stand. And Larry will lead us in our song. We invite you to come.